0: Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cassis Belly Project. Before we get started, I have a couple of corrections to address. First, in the previous episode, I referred to VMI as the Virginia Military Academy, when that's obviously wrong from the initials. It's the Virginia Military Institute. Just a quick slip-up I made, and didn't notice while I was editing last time. The second correction is from listener Adam, in Oregon, who informed me that Fort Stevens is in Oregon, not Washington. Anyway... With that out of the way, we can begin this installment where we essentially go back to the Eastern Front in the winter of 1941 to 42. We'll trace that out to the summer of 42. Following this episode, I think we'll backtrack a little bit again to cover what's been happening in North Africa. Then after that, it's back to the Pacific for the battles of the Coral Sea and Midway. Anyway, let's begin episode 23, Blue Jubilee. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? If you recall, when we left off with the invasion of Russia, the Wehrmacht was six months into a headlong dive into the plains of Eastern Europe. The northern armies had reached Leningrad, the southern armies were continuing to push east into Ukraine, and the central army's leading scout elements had just barely glimpsed the lights of Moscow's suburbs. The German soldiers were exhausted and freezing. The Russians, for their part, were battered and ill-equipped, but resolute. On December 5th, 1941, Stalin initiated a counter-offensive in the Kalinin and West Fronts to push back the German Army Group center in front of Moscow. On December 6th, the Southwest Front joined in on the counter-attack. This counter-attack would not be a massive hammer blow on the Germans, like Stalin had imagined. Instead, it was more like a determined shove. The Soviet army was composed almost entirely of greenhorns and lacked heavy weapons of all kinds. In some instances, even small arms were lacking, and men were sent into battle unarmed, told to pick up a weapon when they found one. If it weren't for the beleaguered state the Germans were in, the counteroffensive would have hardly made a dent at all. The only real advantage Red Army troops had was that they had proper winter clothing. So when the green, lightly armed Soviet conscripts met the exhausted, freezing, exposed Germans, they succeeded in pushing them back. On December 17th, Stalin ordered the Leningrad, Fulkov, and Northwest Fronts to join in on the counterattack to try and rescue Leningrad. In an attempt to separate Army Group Center and Army Group North, he ordered the 4th Shock Army to make a drive for Smolensk. At the same time, an amphibious operation was launched to try and rescue Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula. 20,000 men landed and posed a serious threat to von Manstein's besiegers. With so many fronts, fronts being the term the Soviets used for army groups, by the way, already engaged and apparently making headway, Stalin ordered a general offensive throughout the entire theater on January 5, 1942. This was not necessarily the best use of limited Soviet resources. Stalin wanted to push back the Germans everywhere. Zhukov, on the other hand, argued that what little excess equipment existed be made available to the forces fighting army Group center, and the counteroffensive should not even be attempted in the north and south. Soviet industry was not fully mobilized yet, nor operating at maximum capacity, so Soviet formations lacked heavy weapons and ammunition for the entirety of their army. Artillery along most of the front was allocated only one or two rounds a day, hardly enough to maintain a defensive posture, much less a grand offensive. Zhukov also argued that Germans in those sectors had prepared defensive positions, and that only by concentrating on one portion of the enemy's frontage could they succeed. Additionally, In the center, the Germans were severely disorganized from the counterattack that had already taken place. Stalin overruled him, though, so the offensives went forward. The Soviet winter counteroffensive was on and would be fought tooth and nail. Unfortunately for the Russians, though, Zhukov would be proved correct. The fresh Russian troops had to learn tough lessons against hardened and tactically proficient German soldiers. Nevertheless, the Red Army made gains through sheer manpower and force of will. Fighting against a beleaguered enemy at the end of thousands of miles long supply line has its advantages, and as Stalin was fond of saying, quantity has a quality all its own. The Wehrmacht was beaten back between 50 and 200 miles along the 1,000 miles of frontage, and the area immediately in front of Moscow was cleared of Germans, ending the threat to the capital city and its logistics hub. But by March, the Red Army had run out of steam. Yes, some gains had been made, but at a terrible price. Countless men died throwing themselves at German positions, and oft as not, the Germans were willing to surrender untenable ground. Stalin had to admit that an ill supplied, undermanned counteroffensive would not work. He would have to allow his armies time to dig in and wait until Soviet production could keep up with demand, and then exceed it in order to create stockpiles for later offensives. March not only brought the end of the winter counteroffensive, but also the spring thaw. Once frozen planes that allowed for relatively easy armored maneuver gave way to an endless bog. Tracked and wheeled vehicles of all types became mired in mud that consumed them up to their axles. Relishing the forced truce, since neither side could effectively maneuver against the other, both the Wehrmacht and the Red Army used the short respite between March and June to rest and refit. During the previous nine months of fighting, neither side, but especially the Russians, could put together more than piecemeal replacements. The Red Army was simply being attrited faster than it could replace and reorganize. By this time, the Russian industry was training out a 1,000 tanks a month and 1,800 aircraft, but these hardly replaced equipment lost in battle, considering large encirclements often yielded thousands of tanks and guns to the enemy. Though 3 million men had surrendered in the previous 9 months, and a million more had become casualties, the Red Army had another 9 million men available to press into service. That manpower was enough to field 400 divisions with replacements still available. The only thing missing was material and time to train and equip the men. Since the start of the war, Soviet industry had already managed to turn out 4,500 tanks, 3,000 aircraft, and 50,000 mortar tubes. The rearming of the Red Army was a task the Soviet Union could certainly undertake. Though Germany did not have quite as many men available to press into service, there were still efficiencies to be gained and new recruits to induct into her combat arms. By the spring of 1942, 22 divisions were added to the roles of the German army, and 900,000 losses were replaced. The Wehrmacht would never fully recover though. By April 1942, the German army lacked 1,600 tanks, 2,000 artillery pieces, and 7,000 direct-fire anti-tank guns, and 250,000 horses for its mostly non-mechanized forces. Even having replaced 900,000 losses, the Ostheer was still 600,000 short, and most divisions were only at 70% strength. This was still acceptable to Hitler, though. He knew going into Barbarossa that materially the odds were stacked against him. He estimated that his 120 divisions would have to face off against roughly 200 Russian. In reality, about 180 Russian divisions were actually in theater for the first year of the war. The remainder of the 240 stationed in the Far East to ward off Japan. He also believed that his 3,500 tanks, committed to the invasion, would be facing off against 10,000 Soviet. In reality, he had underestimated Soviet tank forces by more than half. The Red Army possessed 24,000 in total. The great advantage the Germans had to press was superior organization, doctrine, and quality. All three advantages were quickly disappearing by early 1942. First, the Russians were learning how to organize a modern tank force. They were forming armored divisions and tank armies of their own, rather than distributing armor as infantry support. They were improving their doctrine and learning how to create tank traps at both the tactical and operational scale. And lastly, they were beginning to turn out the modern T-34, considered by many to be the best tank produced during the Second World War, and possibly ever. After the spring thaw came the summer heat, which dried out the mud and set the conditions for the offensive once again. This time, emphasis would be placed on army Group south. Hitler no longer believed Moscow to be the great prize, but rather the natural resources of Ukraine and the Caucasus region, most especially oil. Hitler firmly believed that if he could deny these resources to Stalin, he could force his capitulation due to sheer lack of war material. During the initial campaign season, the Wehrmacht had captured the territory where nearly half of the Soviet population resided, two-thirds of its coal sources and half of its farmland. On top of that, more than half of its production capacity for iron, steel, and aluminum. Hitler believed that if he could capitalize on this, the war was his. Despite the logic of the plan, the central calculus of the Soviet-German war had not changed. Moscow was still the central rail and logistics hub for the Soviet Union. Capturing it would effectively sever ties with the remaining productive areas and would grant the Luftwaffe air bases from which to interdict Russian logistics on all fronts. Maybe not the only thing that saved Stalin, but certainly central, was the monumental effort to move industrial capacity east of the Urals. Factories were deconstructed and moved en masse east by rail. Both men and machine tools were shipped and reassembled hundreds or even thousands of miles away. Say what you will about totalitarian central planning, the migration of Soviet industry was a marvel few societies could pull off. Ignoring the two salients the Red Army had created near Moscow, Hitler devised his plans for the south. By early May 1942, Army Group South and the newly formed Army Group A held a line running north-south about 100 miles west of the Don. Army Group South would initiate the offensive with Two Pincered Drive on Voronezh, lying about 200 miles north of the Sea of Kharkov on the Don River. Once captured, Army Group South and Army Group A a drive down the corridor between the initial front lines and the Don until they reached Stalingrad. Once captured, the plan was to form an eastern wall and sent Army Group A driving south into the Caucasus. If all went according to plan, the Red Army would be beaten back, and the oil wealth of the lower Caucasus would be captured, denying Stalin the precious lifeblood of modern war. As soon as the ground was hard and dry, the Germans would resume the offensive. The attack on the Crimean Peninsula would be the first step in the renewed offensive. Manstein drove for the town of Kerch, which had been reinforced during the winter and spring with 20,000 men, bringing the total on the peninsula to up to 250,000. Within a week, 170,000 Russians had fallen prisoner, and almost the entirety of the Crimean Peninsula lay in German hands. Only the port city of Sevastopol remained. On June 1st, the Battle of Sevastopol began. Sevastopol was a true fortress city. Its outer bastion was 20 miles around, and its inner eight. Inside these were well over 100,000 soldiers, sailors, and naval infantrymen, dug into tunnels and bunkers, where they not only ate and slept, but turned out ammunition as they fought. Supporting them were 600 guns, many of which were huge coastal defense guns designed to penetrate battleship hulls. Von Manstein began his assault with an artillery barrage and aerial bombardment large enough to make even the commanders of the First World War blush. Over the course of five days, 50,000 tons of high-explosive artillery shells and 20,000 tons of bombs were hurled at the city. The bombardment was so massive, it would have registered as a small earthquake. Following the bombardment, Manstein brought the 11th Army to bear with all 670 field guns, 450 mortars, 720 tanks, and 600 aircraft. Savage fighting would ensue for the next three weeks. The maze of Soviet trenches and later city streets would soak up infantry far more quickly than open terrain. The Germans would assault and infiltrate the Soviet trench system, then face masses of Russian soldiers and civilians hurling themselves at them as they attempted to sally out of the siege. The stout defense by the Red Army and Navy spurred the Germans to bring even heavier indirect fire to bear. Von Manstein brought the Wehrmacht siege train south, including the massive 31.5-inch gun Schwergustav. The gun was so massive it could fire a 7-ton shell from 19 miles away. It only fired 48 rounds but the German gunners made those rounds count. Nine of those rounds were fired at Severnaya Bay, where they penetrated 100 feet of water and then into an underground magazine the Soviets believed to be invulnerable. Its armor-piercing rounds were able to systematically demolish Soviet bunkers and fortresses inside the city. Despite the massive amount of indirect fire and small arms exchanges, there were occasional lulls in combat. These lulls were filled with a battle of loudspeakers, what today would be called PSYOPs, Soviet loudspeakers would announce messages in German and Romanian, several Romanian divisions were present at this part of the Eastern Front, and the Germans would make announcements in Russian. It became a sort of game that the men in the trenches would look forward to. They often laughed at the other side's comical grammatical errors and accents. These were a rare respite, though. All the while, the Soviet Navy ferried what men and supplies into the city it could, often braving German indirect fire and aircraft. These reinforcements would ultimately not shift the weight of the battle, though, and as the days turned into weeks, the Germans steadily advanced. On the night of 28 into 29 June, under cover of smoke, German infantry crossed the bay, and the next day had penetrated the outskirts of the town. Seeing the writing on the wall, Soviet commanders began the evacuation. Sips that had for the last few weeks been ferrying men into the city were now trying desperately to get them out, before the vice of German infantry and armor locked them in. After another three days, Sevastopol was yet another German-occupied town. On July 4th, 1942, the entirety of the Crimean Peninsula lay in German hands, though not without cost. The 11th Army had been literally decimated and would not be able to immediately cross the Kerch Straits to the Caucasus and continue the drive. What the victory at Sevastopol did provide was von Manstein with his Field Marshal's baton, whatever consolation that may have been for him. On June 28th, Operation Blue, the German Southern Offensive already described, began in earnest. Four armies, the 6th, 17th, as well as the 1st, Panzer, and 4th Panzer, advanced eastward organized under Army Group South and Army Group A. The four defending Soviet armies would be swept aside in the first few days of battle, partly because Stalin was holding reserves for an expected offensive against Moscow. The 40th Soviet Army was completely annihilated by July 1st, and the other three defending armies practically tripped over themselves trying to withdraw over the featureless and indefensible steppe. German armored columns advanced at 30 to 40 miles a day, once again outpacing supporting light infantry. The success of their offensive would be their undoing, however. Von Bock worried that their left flank was becoming exposed to counterattack, and lobbied Hitler to change the plan for Operation Blue. Instead of all army groups, South and A, plunging into the Caucasus, Only Paulus' 6th Army would continue the southern advance towards Stalingrad. Hoth's 4th Panzer Army would turn left and capture Voronezh. Hitler instructed him not to get his tanks bogged down, so they would be available to support the drive south, which he promptly failed to do. German armor got caught up in the battle for Voronezh, slowing Paulus' 6th Army's advance on Stalingrad. For this, von Bock was replaced by von Weichs as commander of Army Group South, now redubbed Army Group B. Further complicating the German advance was increased skill in Red Army leadership. General Timoshenko had successfully convinced Stalin that ordering no retreat was actually counterproductive, especially in the endless plains of southern Russia. This prevented the catastrophic encirclement that had characterized the first six months of the war. Instead, Soviet formations would withdraw from German pinchers and slip out of their traps. Only 90,000 Russian prisoners were taken by the Germans during the summer of 1942 a mere fraction of the millions that fell a year earlier. On July 23rd, Hitler relocated his headquarters to Vinitsa, Ukraine, to more closely direct operations and issued Führer Directive No. 45, which instructed Army Group A to push straight south and cross the Don, where it runs east-west, and order Army Group B to capture Stalingrad. After securing a blocking position at Stalingrad and crossing the Don, the two Army groups would turn their gaze on Ostrakhan, and swallow up the whole of the Caucasus. For the most part, the German offensive during the summer of 1942 was a wild success. By the onset of winter in November, German forces had nearly reached Georgia and the Caucasus' mountains. This made Stalin mad. His empire seemed to be crumbling. Sure, the bleeding had been staunched in the north, but his southern flank was falling away. To help prevent a complete Soviet collapse, the United States began ferrying as much material as possible in. Supplies flowed through the Arctic convoys discussed in episode 14, but also via the American-built Trans-Persian Railway and through the port of Vladivostok, then across the Asian landmass on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Though the arctic Murmansk run was the most direct, it was also the most perilous. The Iranian route was effective, but with the Wehrmacht advancing so far east and south, the most secure route became the long way around the world. Japanese raiders would not harass Russian-flagged ships in the Pacific, but the Trans-Siberian Railway was long and had limited bandwidth for supplies. In this way, American boots kept Red Army soldiers marching, and American trucks made in Detroit kept them supplied. Mere material help was not enough for Stalin, though. He demanded assistance and manpower. A second front needed to be opened against the Germans, preferably in France. The Americans were highly motivated to conduct a cross-channel invasion, but the British were not, especially Churchill always fascinated by peripheral operations. The British preferred to fight the Germans in the existing North African front. Americans being direct and practical scoffed at the idea of sailing hundreds of miles out of their way to a sideshow theater when Calais was only 25 miles from Dover. The disastrous raid on Dieppe would teach them that maybe they needed to rethink their strategy. Operation Jubilee, as the raid on Dieppe was codenamed, was an attempt to take a port with an invasion so that supplies would immediately begin to flow into the beachhead. The experiment would be conducted by six Canadian infantry battalions and one armored regiment, supported by two British commando teams. The infantry was tasked with landing along the beaches at the villages of Poy, Porville, and in front of Dieppe itself. From there, they would fight inland, capturing the port and towns around it. The commando's purpose was to knock out the coastal batteries that flanked either side of Dieppe. They would land first, early in the morning, to ensure that the main element would get ashore unharassed. At 3.35 in the morning of August 19, 1942, the landing craft had departed and were making to cross the channel. Unfortunately, one of the commando teams, number 3, had chanced upon a German convoy and were engaged. The element of surprise was lost. The Germans now knew something was going on. Fortunately, the men of No. 4 Commando had reached the French coast undetected and were able to put to shore unmolested. By 0540, they were beginning their assault, and by 0630, had cleared a machine gun nest and were in the process of destroying the main batteries at Varenville and Visteraville-sur-Mer. Less than two hours after landing, No. 4 Commandos had accomplished their mission and were re-embarking on their transports to return to England. Theirs was the only true success of the day. About nine miles to the east, number three commandos had scattered the German convoy and were driving on toward the shore at Berneval. The encounter had completely desynchronized their timing, so that by their scheduled landing time, only 20 men had been put ashore. Though they were not able to destroy the coastal batteries, they were able to harass them with enough small arms fire to prevent them from firing on the main effort. Though not completely successful, they were safely withdrawn. In the center, the Essex Scottish and Royal Light Infantry, or landing in front of Dieppe Casino, at Portville, and the South Saskatchewan Regiment and the Queen's Own Cameron Highlanders put ashore. The Royal Regiment of Canada was sent to Poy. The assault on Dieppe was itself was carried out by the 14th Canadian Army Tank Battalion and the Fusiliers Mont-Royal. Lastly, Marine A Commando was tasked with securing headlands that provided overwatch on the beaches. The main landing would result in utter disaster. The Germans had well-emplaced machine guns that provided both sweeping and enfilading fire. Those men who managed to disembark found themselves being pummeled by heavy and accurate mortar fire that had clearly already been registered. Snipers had been emplaced in well-covered and concealed positions as well, and they specifically targeted Allied leadership, beginning with company commanders, then working their way down to platoon leaders, and eventually down to squad leaders. Senior enlisted leadership and officers suffered disproportionate casualties as the Germans intentionally sought to disorganize the landings. The Essex Scottish and Royal Hamiltons, who landed at the beaches directly in front of the town, were particularly hard hit despite receiving tank support. The tankers fared little better than their dismounted counterparts. Most of the armor was destroyed as soon as they departed their landing craft on the beach. Out of the entire regiment, only six tanks reached the town itself. Those six managed to blaze their way through the German defenses until they ran out of ammo, but even those were eventually disabled or destroyed by the efforts of the German Light Infantry. As the situation on the beaches deteriorated, the overall commander, Major General Roberts of the Canadian Army, ordered his reserves, the Royal Marines and Fusiliers Mont-Royal, to land, violating the old military maxim of never reinforcing failure. These men were as hopelessly committed as those who went before them. By nine in the morning, The disaster which had befallen the raid on Dieppe was becoming clear to all involved, and an evacuation was attempted. By 1400, every man that could be withdrawn was, but huge numbers lay dead on the battlefield, and many more were captured. 900 Canadians died, a further 586 were wounded, and 1,900 were captured. Of the commandos, 275 were wounded. Roughly a division-sized element had been committed to the raid, and had failed completely for a myriad of reasons. First, attempting to assault a fortified port was simply too difficult. In future amphibious assaults in Europe, relatively unfortified hinterlands would be attacked. Second, the Allies were unable to establish air superiority, despite throwing 48 squadrons of supermarine Spitfires and 8 squadrons of Hurricanes at it. Though technically a victory for the RAF, it was certainly a pyrrhic one. The idea was not only to provide air cover for the ground assault, but also to draw the Luftwaffe into a massive air battle where its strength would be sapped by heavy combat. Sort of a Verdun in the sky type situation. Unfortunately, the RAF suffered high losses, with 91 aircraft lost, but even more painful, 64 pilots were either killed or taken prisoner, thus taken out of the pool of experienced pilots available. The Luftwaffe only lost 48 aircraft, and more importantly, only 13 pilots. They were able to replace their losses within a week of the raid. Lastly, the raid was doomed by German intelligence, who had prior warning. The 302nd Infantry Division, which defended the coast at Dieppe, was forewarned and thus at high alert when the landings began. The happenstance collision with the convoy only confirmed their intelligence. The raid was successful in only one sense, that it taught the Allies valuable lessons that would be carried forward. First, they concluded that the battlefield had to be prepared with indirect fire and aerial bombardment in order to soften the defenders' positions. Second, surprise was paramount. If the enemy knew where and when the invasion would take place, they would be too well prepared. The Allies would learn this lesson well, and create entire fictitious armies and elaborate plans to throw off German intelligence. Third, the need for good intelligence and understanding of the battlefield prior to initiating contact. Fourth, the need to avoid heavily built up areas for the initial assault. And fifth, the need for craft capable of picking the men back up. Another lesson was that taking a port intact was basically impossible, even if they could seize it, it would be so damaged from the fighting that it would be useless for bringing supplies in right away, so they would have to create their own port facilities, hence the creation of mulberry harbors later in the war. These lessons, though learned at a terrible price, would set the conditions for victory two years later.